are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, January 5th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Mother Truckers, the local mom-and-pop grocery store on the Ridge, featuring organic produce, local goods, freshly prepared food, also beer and wine. Online shopping with curbside pickup available, mothertruckersgrocery.com. And Sierra Moon Goldsmith, family-owned, full-service goldsmith shop, specializing in custom-designed jewelry. Open Wednesday through Saturday, noon to 4 p.m. in Old Town, Auburn. Information and designs online at sierramoongoldsmith.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, Steve Baker chats with Molly Fisk about celebrating her 500th essay on KVMR's Evening News this Thursday. NPR reports on the difficulty some long-term care facilities are having obtaining COVID vaccines. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Food Sleuth, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Polls are closing at this hour in Georgia, where voters are deciding the balance of power in the U.S. Senate in a pair of high-stakes runoff elections. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the outcome of the races will effectively set the parameters for President-elect Joe Biden's first two years in office. A sweep for Democrats would not only shift the balance of power in the Senate, allowing the party of the incoming president to decide what moves forward in the chamber and what doesn't. It would also flip the leadership in all of the Senate committees. By contrast, a Republican majority could sink not only the Democrats' legislative agenda, but also the Biden administration's cabinet and judicial nominees. Democrats John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock have been locked in tight races with Republicans Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. If either one of the incumbents wins, the GOP will retain control of the Senate. The Democrats need both, with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris serving as the tie-breaking vote. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Scientists say COVID-19 can damage the brain in ways that may increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. NPR's John Hamilton reports on research in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. Scientists reviewed dozens of studies showing how COVID-19 can affect the brain. They found evidence that a coronavirus infection can cause both inflammation in the brain and a weakening of the barrier that usually protects the brain from harmful substances in the bloodstream. Heather Snyder of the Alzheimer's Association says those changes could lead to brain problems years after an infection is gone. We know that those are important in Alzheimer's disease and we're seeing them play a key role here in COVID-19. So the Alzheimer's Association has joined a consortium of researchers from more than 30 countries to study the brain health of people who have recovered from COVID-19. The scientists will look for changes in memory and thinking. John Hamilton, NPR News. Saudi Arabia is cutting its oil production by a million barrels per day as the state of the global economy remains tenuous. Most other members of OPEC will keep their production stable. More from NPR's Camila Dominoski. 
Some oil-producing states are eager to boost their oil output as they hope vaccines will eventually restore oil demand. But Saudi Arabia, the leader of OPEC, is worried about pumping too much oil too soon. So the Saudis announced a surprise cut, which will reduce Saudi revenue but prop up oil prices overall. Here's Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. It's not a little thing. It's not a little tweak. Other cartel members will hold production steady, while OPEC ally Russia will increase output slightly. U.S. producers who do not participate in OPEC cuts will benefit from the Saudis pushing prices up. Already, U.S. crude prices hit $50 for the first time since February. Camila Dominos, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 167 points. This is NPR. Authorities in Norway say they've given up hope of finding survivors following a landslide that swept away homes in a residential area of the country nearly a week ago, killing seven people. Norwegian authorities say three people in the village are still missing after the December 30th disaster. to destroy at least nine buildings, including more than 30 apartments. A small dog was found alive in the rubble yesterday, raising hopes but another smaller landslide just before midday today forced search teams to evacuate. Germany says it is extending its current lockdown by three weeks to the end of January. Here's NPR's Rob Smits. After meeting with the leaders of Germany's 16 states, Chancellor Angela Merkel announced the extension to the current lockdown as well as new restrictions that will last until the end of the month. Starting next Monday, individuals may meet with a maximum of one other person who does not live in their household. Federal and state governments have also decided to restrict people in coronavirus hotspots from traveling more than 15 kilometers from their place of residence for non-essential purposes. The government is also requiring mandatory tests for anyone entering the country. Schools and non-essential shops have been closed in Germany since December 16th. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Berlin. Rules change concerning so-called emotional support animals is beginning to take effect. American, the world's largest airline, says it will ban companion animals gradually by February. Passengers with trained dogs will be allowed to bring the animals on at no extra charge. However, others wanting to bring pets or untrained companion animals on a flight will have to pay a fee. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight will be partly cloudy with a low around 36. On Wednesday, there's a 40% chance of showers after 11 a.m. with a high near 53 and an overnight low near 36 with a 30% chance of showers before 11 p.m. Tonight in Sacramento, there will be increasing clouds with a low around 39 On Wednesday, areas of dense fog are expected before 10 a.m. and a 30% chance of showers after 10 a.m. with a daytime high near 55 and overnight low and an overnight low around 40. In Truckee tonight, there will be increasing clouds with a low around 21. On Wednesday, there is a 20% chance of snow after 2 p.m., otherwise partly sunny skies with a high near 43 and mostly cloudy skies overnight with a low around 14. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be mostly cloudy with a low around 39. Wednesday will be partly sunny with a high near 57 and an overnight low around 39 with partly cloudy skies. Molly Fisk, welcome to KVMR. Why, thank you. 
Uh, good to have you aboard. And it isn't every uh, day that you complete your 500th original creative radio essay, but Thursday's the night for Molly Fisk, poet, teacher, life coach, former poet laureate of, K- of Nevada County and current poet laureate of KVMR. Uh, she'll be doing her uh, uh, 500th essay this Thursday night, probably around 6.25 in the evening uh, on the the KVMR's Evening News, which runs from 6 until 6.30. And you've been doing this for over 15 years now. Um, It's a little scary. I know. Writing humorous, evocative, slice-of-life commentaries. And... uh, but I, uh, but I understand one thing is that uh, it used to be you'd get, you'd be a little edgier, I guess, because you wouldn't write it until Thursday. And I understand now that maybe you have you have switched your schedule a little bit. Well, I decided that I had proved that procrastination was one of my superpowers, and I could stop having to prove it again. So I moved from writing them. I don't really know how I started writing them so late, but. I started after about a year, I think, of writing them. I started to do them on Thursday mornings, and then I'd record at one thirty, and then it would play at 6.25. And that really works perfectly for me. I get smarter the closer to a deadline I get. So it's, it's a useful tool to have and to know how to do. But I'll, there's a place also in the morning you start writing, and, and you have a good idea, and you start writing it down and suddenly your brain goes sideways and you can't finish it or it turns out to be actually quite stupid and you're just you have no wiggle room because of the timing so i decided a couple of years ago that i should really write them on wednesdays (laughs) and bear myself i mean you know i'm getting into my dotage now here at 65 and a half so I need a little more uh, relaxation in my life and no stress. So I decided to write them on Wednesdays. Okay. And how did this all start? Um, Well, there I was, an innocent poet over on Newtown Road, just doing my work. And um, your former news director at the time in 2005 was Carolyn Crane. And that rascal called me up and had me out for tea. I think we were at Broad Street Books, which was the name of it back then, before it changed names three or four times. And she said, I I want to sort of plump up, beef up the news and have more um, going on and have something local happening. And I would like you to write uh, an essay every Thursday. And I was sort of shocked because I didn't know how to write an essay. I wasn't an essayist. Um, But I was in love with radio. And by that time, I'd gotten my broadcaster's license. I'd done a show with Eric Tome called, um, what was it called? Booktown, I think, before the bookstore name, where we interviewed authors. And it had been really fun for me to be on the radio side instead of the listener side. Um, But I really was like, what on earth? And she said, well, you know, just do it. And <laughs> it was pretty funny. Just do it. Okay, fine. I'll learn how to do something I don't know how to do for free for this radio station that I love. Um, and she said, you have three minutes, 
and you can say you can talk about whatever you feel like talking about, except you can't use those famous seven words that are bad words that would close down the radio station. And as I understand it now, nobody knows what the seven words actually are. <laughs> Didn't um, what, what's his name? A famous comic did a whole riff on this. Of course, I'm not going to remember his name, which is a little unfortunate. But we all know him. He was very funny and sharp and acerbic, and he is now de- demised. Anyway, that's how it started. And then the first one I wrote, it was October of 2005, and I wrote about sweeping the driveway, which is interesting because I have a gravel driveway, and I don't think I've ever swept it. So I started out by lying. <laughs> <laughs> and I have put fibs in there every now and then ever since. Um, but not many fibs. A lot of it's either quite true or I'm pretty sure it's true and I haven't gone and checked yet because I'm a terrible fact checker. What uh, What would you say writing these essays um, has uh, has taught you? It's taught me. It taught me to say yes to things I don't know how to do. Um, it's taught me to keep going. It's been this huge thing in my life, which I never would have predicted because it taught me to keep going in a way that I didn't know how to keep going back then. And um, and it did this in, in a secret way because it was a job, a task. It wasn't some sort of big psychological thing. But I learned a lot of big psychological things from doing it about just, you know, I mean, some of them, like that Neil Young remark about his neck and the elephant scrotum, I still, thats I've gotten more fan mail from that essay than I've gotten from any of the other 499, <laughs> possibly combined. Um, people loved that. And so I got some praise. I got heard and listened to in a way that when you're a poet, I mean, poets really are out on the edge of Saturn's rings in terms of getting noticed. Even now when, you know, we have disasters, poetry comes more into the foreground because it's so helpful. But in daily life, your basic person is not thinking about poetry at all. And to have a weekly um, platform, I guess they would call it, or just, just to have a weekly three minutes to be with my community, whoever might happen to be listening, um, was a kind of exposure and a way of being known that I just really craved and hadn't known how to get it. I mean, it's one of the reasons when I was an early poet, people would say, oh, you're so ambitious. And I kept thinking, that doesn't sound very good. It sounds like they're telling me I should not be this way. I learned how to keep going, and that has been an enormous uh, gift in my life to which I am incredibly grateful. And I also learned how to handle the modicum of fame that I have garnered in a 12-mile radius of my house, um, <laughs> which I like very much. So thank you. Well, now, the, <clears throat> the thanks is certainly coming from KVMR for you, for uh, uh, these, this wonderful service that you have done. I know... Um, I think you told me uh, well, maybe a week or so ago that uh, that uh, uh, back at the beginning, if you'd told me one of my life's greatest devotions would be to writing radio essays, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> yes. 
I still may laugh at you, Steve, because you're funny. But that was really a surprise to look. It is a, a surprise to look back at the. And there are two things actually that I've done with regularity for the last 15 years. And the other one is to teach cancer patients at the hospital. And I'm not. I mean, I was a poet. I was going to be teaching poetry, and it turned out I'm teaching expressive writing to cancer patients as one of the main things I've done in my life. So these surprises come along, and you look back and you think, what on earth happened? It's not that I'm not a poet. I'm still a poet. But these other things helped me make a life. Yeah. And, well, one thing we should mention is that not only have you... uh, have you written these essays? You've also uh, compiled them. And in fact, uh, there are four paperback collections of these essays with uh, the unlikely names of uh, Blow Drying a Chicken, Using Your Turn Signal Promotes World Peace, which Pascal and I discussed this morning, Uh Houston, We Have a Possum, and most recently, uh, 2018's uh, Naming Your Teeth. Have you named your teeth yet, Steve? Um, I, I, well, if I had, I, I, I could name them after quintuplets. I think that's about how many teeth I have left. <laughs> oh, Don't tell us that. This is radio. Oh, we no, imagine good. you with a gorgeous smile. Ah, well, well, it, uh, it, it, it can be gorgeous, and uh, uh, particularly when you're around. Um, Aw. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but the, these books are available at Harmony Books in Nevada City. The bookseller in Grass Valley, SPD Markets, and I believe online at mollyfisk.com. Indeed. So, and they're awfully cute. <laughs> they and, are. They're as cute the, as their names. <laughs> the Max that was mentioned in the Botox essay is my friend Maxima Khan, who designed all the covers. And we have had the best time together designing the covers of these books. It's just, I mean, the two chickens on Blow Drying a Chicken we met, we found from different places on the Internet. And so it's a first date for those two chickens on the cover of the book. We had so much fun. And I always wanted, I, you know, I grew up being read to and all that stuff. I'm a child of the 50s. And I always wanted to have my own books in a little box like the Beatrix Potter books. And I only have four of them. I might do one more. And then I would have five, and that would be enough for the right size box, I think. <laughs> so a person could say that I'd been collected and that I had my own little box. We have these secret desires, Baker, that, that you know we don't always announce on the radio. But there, I just did. Ah, well, that'd be, yes, a, a box full of Molly Fisk books. Yeah. That sounds good to me. And um, I guess uh, uh, maybe you could just... Uh, are you able to use uh, what you've learned, um, um, say, in editing with, uh, in, in other parts of your life, like when you're teaching a class or coaching uh, somebody? Oh, totally. Um, the idea that you only have three minutes is terrifying for a writer, and then it turns out to be a fabulous um, lesson because you can take almost any sentence and make it twice as long or half as long and to fit the time. And it took me a while to figure that out. It probably took me a couple of years to to really get good at doing that so that when I wrote too short or wrote too long, um, and I used to time them with my voice and um, I think the kitchen timer. 
And now I just go by word count because I've done so many of them. I know that if it's about 530 words, it's the right length. Ah. So it's really, um, as a writer, it's been a fabulous tool. And it's really easy to teach. Once I've, since I've done it so many times, it's really easy to teach other people how to do it. It's like, you know, just whip out all those, get those adjectives out of the way, turn the verb around, you know, tighten it up, or else just add a few more adjectives and be a little more um, loquacious, as we like to say. <laughs> I, well, that's a pretty big word. But, uh, well, <laughs> but I'll go with it. Words. You know, you can use them once in a while. It cheers people up. And sometimes it sends them to the dictionary, which is always a good idea. I would think so. Well, Molly, again, you're celebrating your 50th, 500th on uh, KVMR Radio SA. Uh, you've been doing this, as we said, for about uh, over 15 years now. And it's coming up this, co- this coming Thursday. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should, maybe this one you should, you should, should start working on it on Tuesday. I might actually start today just because I'm in the mood now I've talked to you about it. Aha. That's I think it's, I think it, you know, the, you mentioned devotion before and I've talked about devotion. It might have something about devotion in it. Um, I think it may have something about practice. And I know it's going to have something about dancing. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Um, we'll, we'll wait to see how the combination works out in those three minutes. Okay. And uh, so right now you're actually, uh, uh, what you're sounding now sounds like an essay is in the works. Yes. All right. I want to thank you very much for joining us here this morning, Molly. And uh, again, congratulations on uh, uh, what, a, what a service you have, been, you have been and are for our listeners. Aww, uh, well, and, you know, maybe there's 15 more years uh, in it for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Don't, don't say things like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> it helps if I think this is, the, this is the one, you know, I can't go too much into the future. And these days, nobody much wants to go too much into the future because it just isn't clear what's going on. Thanks so much, Molly. See you later. All right. That was an interview with Molly Fisk, who on Thursday this week will be contributing her 500th essay to KVMR's Evening News. The last week of December was the deadliest yet for people in nursing homes, with more than 6,400 deaths. More than a third of all COVID-19 deaths are now linked to long-term care. Coronavirus vaccines are reaching more and more facilities, but many worry they won't come soon enough to stave off a lot more deaths. Will Stone reports. Terry Robertson had no interest in waiting till the second week of January to start vaccinating the residents and staff of the long-term care community he runs north of Seattle. We got notice from CVS that January 9 was our first date, and I thought, that doesn't work. So Robertson switched to another pharmacy, one that was able to bring the first doses to Josephine Caring Community much sooner, just a few days after Christmas. You know, I just pinch me. Am I dreaming? Is the nightmare over? I'm just like, wow, this thing could really be over. In the late fall, the coronavirus was rampant in this northwest corner of Washington state. Eventually, it got a foothold at Josephine. We had residents, just had so many, test positive, and 
They're doing everything we can. By early December, more than 170 people had been infected. Some died. And it's the same story in nursing homes and assisted living communities in dozens of states. Unfortunately, even though we've been at this for so many months, not that much has changed. That's Tamara Konetska, a professor who studies long-term care at the University of Chicago. She says the research is clear. Even the best-run nursing homes are not impervious to outbreaks. When there's a reservoir of disease in the surrounding city or town. All along, it's just been delusional that we could have these areas with high community spread and somehow protect long-term care residents. It just doesn't work. Staff come and go. Some work at multiple places, and residents move in and out, too. The vaccine is a key turning point, but Konetska says it's not a magic bullet. I think it'll dramatically reduce the number of deaths that we see. But will it eliminate the problem? Not yet. There will need to be multiple rounds of vaccination to deal with the churn of staff and residents. In Pennsylvania and many states, at least half of all COVID deaths are linked to long-term care. Zach Schamberg leads an industry group in the state. He says nursing homes, which have struggled to get PPE, remain desperate. Since day one of the pandemic, we have fought for one thing, and that's prioritization. And it's no different now than it was 10 or 11 months ago. Some of Schamberg's members aren't scheduled to get the vaccine until late January or even early February. Elaine Ryan with AARP says there just hasn't been enough transparency about nursing home outbreaks and now vaccines. It is an American tragedy. It's a national disaster. It's not that we don't know how. There is a lack of accountability Some states, including West Virginia and Connecticut, are doing well with vaccinating. So says Mark Parkinson with the American Healthcare Association. Every week that the vaccine is delayed in long-term care facilities will mean at least an additional 4,000 to 6,000 deaths. So there's just no excuse for any governor not making this an incredible priority. But so far, he thinks the U.S. is on track to meet the goal of getting every facility its second dose by March. For NPR News, I'm Will Stone. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. Welcome to another edition of Your Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Despite the unprecedented economic damage brought about by the COVID-19 shutdowns, there are opportunities for the nimble entrepreneur. The capitalistic term creative destruction is perfectly illustrated in the current environment. The shutdowns have caused an untold number of businesses to close their doors. This analyst estimates 25% of small business will not return. The crux of the fallout will be concentrated in restaurants, various areas of retail and hospitality, and other smaller mom-and-pop type stores. Small businesses make up a majority of overall business in the United States, which means as business goes under due to COVID, a gap will be left where there once was a glut. At any given time, new businesses continually open up in the ebb and flow of the normal business cycle. So with many businesses going belly up, the reopening period from COVID could be an ideal time to open up a new endeavor in the areas that have been hit the hardest. 
Consider in the past when new businesses open up, their new customers actually come from someone else's old customers. Simply put, a new business must steal customers from existing businesses to survive. The reality is because new customers do not magically appear on the planet. When a new business forms, new businesses instead are for the most part drawing off an existing customer base. This could be better illustrated by saying new businesses must therefore steal somebody else's customers. Since humans are creatures of habit, which include their shopping habits, they are reluctant to change where they shop, unless for good reason. This fact is one in a long list of stark realities and reasons that causes 9 out of 10 businesses to fail before reaching their second year of operation. Although it is unfortunate that the COVID shutdowns have caused many businesses to shutter their establishments, this is the destructive part of the term, creative destruction, that the capitalistic vocabulary refers to. The creative part is the opportunity that the closing down of these businesses brings about to new business owners that have the resources to start up in this environment. The new environment will have many holes and gaps in it brought about by the COVID closures. New businesses will not have to steal customers from existing businesses, or at least not as many, because many of those have shut down. With so many of the would-be competitors now out of business, new business endeavors will just fill the gaps left by the dissolutions of the stores shuttered from COVID. A much better environment for a new business. The opportunity brought about by the destruction of so many businesses could be argued to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to the nimble entrepreneur. Opening up a new business now in a sector that has been decimated by the shutdowns could be just the opportunity potential startup owners could be looking for. Another consideration is that storefront real estate should be plentiful, meaning one would be in a position for hardline negotiations for lease and rental rates due to the glut of available storefronts brought about by the same reason the COVID shutdowns. Potential businesses should have the pick of the litter when it comes to prime real estate space and the ability to negotiate a very competitive lease. Landlords will likely be eager to fill storefronts vacated by bankrupt businesses. The same opportunity will exist for the businesses that were strong enough to survive. They too will benefit greatly from far fewer competitors and a more competitive environment around them. They will be able to negotiate current lease rates downward or move altogether to a better location or cheaper location. In conclusion, it is said only the strong survive, and in a capitalistic system, it can mean tremendous opportunity for some in the face of a stark reality for others. That's it for today's Money Matters. Today's newscast is my opinion only, and not the opinion of any bank or investment advisory firm, or of this station's staff, management, or underwriters. Nothing stated is meant to ensure a guarantee or be construed as investment advice. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and am a Medicare agent approved. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Kuniberg. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to kvmr.org where you can listen on demand. 
Coming up next, we bring you Food Sleuth. And at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Production and KVMR's news team, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha